Hello and welcome to Mind on the Matter. I'm Tuba Khan, currently a fourth year medical student at King's College London with a bachelor's degree in neuroscience from the University of Sussex. And I love dogs. Just thought I would throw that in there. This is the final episode of my first season. I know, who thought I'd be doing seasons? My wonderful guest for this finale is Dr. Weenie Paul, a London-based GP and teacher development lead for King's undergraduate medical education in the community. I wanted to do an episode to raise awareness about GPs because my mum is actually a GP and I've seen how hard she works and how she always puts her patients before herself. So, Rini, what does general practice mean to you? I think general practice has had a bit of a sort of image change. Up until recently, I think GPs weren't considered specialists and we're still not on the GMC register. A colleague of mine, Katie Coleman, set up a petition in 2017 demanding specialist recognition for GPs because of all the training we go through, similarly to hospital consultants. That's still a work in progress. But I think there has been a bit of a shift in thinking that we are actually expert generalists and we are gatekeepers, I think, to the, you know, to to patients, to healthcare. I also see us as navigators for patients, helping them try and sort of work their way through these quite complex systems. And I guess that's what I would see myself as, you know, those are our kind of main roles, but also I guess we are different in the sense that we rarely have one-off encounters with patients. We have a lot of continuity that they may not get elsewhere in the system. Rini, I'll just explain quickly to those listeners who maybe aren't aware of how one becomes a GP. So you have to go through medical school, which is five or six years, or what feels like decades if you decide to do a degree beforehand. Then you do two years of being a junior doctor, followed by three years of speciality GP training, where you rotate through different areas. Although I think it was slightly different when you were training, wasn't it, Rooney? When I was training, I actually had a bit more flexibility. I didn't need to make that decision right away. And so I was able to dabble in being a surgeon for a little while before I realized that actually I wanted to be a general practitioner. And that was actually always what I'd wanted to do. So um, I was able to use that experience I'd already had as a building block in surgery. And, you know, it's not not a quick process. It takes many years to become a sort of qualified GP. And I think there are lots of interesting pathways now for GPs. There are lots of options within sort of being a general practitioner. And I don't really know that many GPs that only do general practice as clinical work. They will often have other clinical or academic roles as well. What do you think it was that drew you into wanting to become a GP? If I'm honest, I think I'm really nosy and I just find people's lives endlessly fascinating. And I think it's just such a privilege that you know, people really, I know doctors generally are the most trusted kind of profession that there is. But, you know, I am amazed that even when people haven't met me, obviously during the pandemic, people will be speaking to me generally over the phone, that people will trust me and open up and tell me sometimes really difficult aspects of their lives or their trauma that they've experienced in the past but I just think it's absolutely never boring I'm always really interested in absolutely everyone I speak to there's just 
so much variety. I actually very rarely know how a conversation with my next patient will will go. It sort of keeps me on my toes, really. Do you have any particular patient story that stood out to you and that you could share with us? Yeah, so one of the stories I always share with students is just about initial impressions. So in general practice, I always say to our students, uh, you know, before you call the patient in or before you speak to them on the phone, um, have a look through their notes and, you know, you'll get a sense of maybe who the person is that you're about to speak to. And I remember doing the same myself, so looking through the notes for a new patient of mine who I'd never seen before. I'm going to change some of the details so so the the person's not identifiable, but who was relatively young, uh, had a diagnosis of personality disorder. He was on our obesity register, a long history of self-harm, lots of mental health admissions and input. And I remember thinking, okay, well, that's what it says on the notes, but let me just see who this person is and, you know, start afresh because I've not met them before. And so I spoke to them and found out a bit a bit more about them. They're still my patients sort of 10 years down the line. But I think what was really interesting was that at the end of that very first consultation, the patient said to me, Dr. Paul, you've done something that not a lot of people do. And I said, oh, well, well what's that? He said, you haven't judged me because I think my notes look quite scary and people make an impression of who I might be before they've even met me. And and I just use that as an example to say, you know, actually, we don't know what our patients are sort of bringing to us, what their past are like, even if it tells you something on a piece of paper, what it what sort of is written in black and white doesn't always translate. So I think I always go into every encounter keeping a really open mind about what will happen. And I'm very happy to kind of go with the flow. And I think if you make a judgment, I think the the person sat opposite you will pick that up. Usually kind of pre-pandemic, it will have been kind of through your body language or through your questioning. But it just really has, has stuck with me because he'd noticed so many other people treat him differently because of what they'd read in the notes. Thank you for sharing that. That story has so many learning points. One thing I always think about is to a doctor, you see so many patients in a day, but to the patient, you're there only one doctor. And often, because it is about health, which is quite an intimate subject, they might feel very stressed or nervous beforehand. I know I certainly have. So initial impressions when you walk into that room is so important. What do you think are some of the key skills that a GP should have? So I think we've got to be kind of brilliant communicators and I know we will all have different skills and I think it's really interesting that you know when I went to medical school um, and I appreciate I'm a fair bit older now but we didn't have any communication skills training and so I think the thinking was for a very long time that you know some people are just naturally very good communicators and actually you know I think it's a skill like any I do think some people have it innately but you know I think it can be something you can work on that you can get better at Um, but I think it is just really sort of being present and really listening and really thinking this person sat in front of me at the moment this is the person that is kind of really important and just trying to do the best that you can so within that kind of actively listening 
I think as GPs, I think it's really important that we are good at taking a step back and seeing the big picture. So I often notice when we've got new trainees at the practice, they will, you know, focus in on the back pain or the tension headache and be inclined to do some tests. Whereas actually my natural instinct is to do the opposite, is to sort of think about what the bigger picture is, what's going on in that person's life what their stressors are Uh, and actually I'm very loath to do lots of unnecessary investigations and I'm really pleased when I can see our trainees doing the same that they begin to sort of feel more confident um, exploring mood and what's really going on for that person and actually how you might be able to manage that without doing lots of blood tests. And I think the other kind of main shift, we've sort of taken an approach in general practice more recently that, you know, our patients are our partners, they are the experts in their own health and well-being. Actually, we've got a more coaching approach where patients have the answers. They spend most of their time looking after themselves and they spend actually very limited amounts of time with a healthcare professional. So if we can tap into people's own motivations to achieve better health outcomes and actually a patient's ideas of how they can kind of get fitter or lose weight or eat more healthily will be far better than mine because it will be personalized to them. So I think that's been a real shift thinking about actively promoting self-care and kind of good help, which is really thinking about what the patient needs. And I guess the other thing, like with many of our other hospital colleagues, is that we work in huge teams and we are helping patients, as I said before, navigate through those kind of health and social care systems as well. Being a GP is the meaning of holistic care, dropping a buzzword in there. You have to deal with every aspect of a patient's life and you're probably with them almost throughout their whole life, aren't you? Yeah, so, you know, especially during the pandemic, I think we have borne witness to our patients losing relatives who have died of COVID or just on non-COVID things. And, you know, I'm there for my patients and their children are born and doing their baby checks. You know, often I will know generations of the same family as well. That's a lot of responsibility to have, and I'm sure it can be very emotionally draining for you as well. What do you think are some of the hardest aspects of being a GP? So I think it is thinking about the kind of social stuff, the stuff that's out of my control, you know, what's happened beforehand, traumatic childhood experiences or yeah, adverse childhood experiences, they're called. And then how that patient presents, I think it's not always having access to the services that patients need and when they need them or in timely manner uh, you know so I had a patient with really traumatic childhood who was diagnosed with PTSD was on a waiting list for trauma services and counselling so really had put her life on hold waiting to be engaged with with this very specific very specialized trauma service and equally I felt really hopeful that that was going to be the the next step forward and it would really be beneficial she had a bit of a crisis just as she was about to start her trauma work and then um, because she was in a crisis she got sort of put down to the bottom of the list and had to start the process again she lost faith in the system I have to say 
so did I. I sort of was really advocating. I was speaking to everyone I could saying, look, this can't be right that she has to wait another year. I mean, you know, this is someone who has suffered lots of trauma and has post-traumatic stress. Of course, they're going to have periods of instability. And I... I just, so I find the things that are out of my control, which are quite a lot of the things, really difficult. I sometimes find it difficult when children, as my patients, or um, older, elderly, frail patients, when I'm dealing with their relatives, I find if the relative is really anxious or worried, that often takes over the conversation and I have to remind myself who's actually my patient and at the centre of the conversation. Yeah, I would say those are some of the most challenging things. Not always having easy access to support. I wish, you know, we had physiotherapy kind of on tap, but I wish we had a physiotherapist at our practice because so many people end up with chronic pain that I think with education and a bit of early intervention could end up in a very different place. I know every GP practice is different, but are there any surgeries that can offer different services on site, like you were mentioning about the physiotherapist? I think I talked to you about sort of team working or mentioned it very briefly. And I think actually the general practice team is hugely kind of changing. So we have a physician's associate our practice. I know that some GP practices have first line kind of physiotherapists, have paramedics as kind of first responders. We have kind of integrated teams like a rapid response team that also has um, OT services and physiotherapists, social workers. And this and nurses and they can do, you know, vi- a visit to a patient of ours and do blood tests and give them a bit of additional support and and going back to what you mentioned about you know that holistic approach, we do have psychiatry colleagues in the community to give us a bit of additional help and support and signposting. So we've got drug and alcohol and substance misuse doctors and advocates that work with us. We also have social prescribers. I work in Islington in North London. And so all our Islington practices have a social prescriber. And I think that's a really different approach because because I think there is an acknowledgement a lot of what happens and what people need is sort of social and services are changing. And I don't always know what's out there for our young people or someone who maybe is particularly interested in arts or you know something else that or dance or movement and so actually our social prescribers are sort of really highly trained in having these conversations working with patients really being able to help with finances you know uh, social support um, all the things that are sort of not medical that you know before I just thought god I don't really know how to you know, access the right services. And I know there's lots of amazing things that happen out there. So I think that's be an amazing, really positive shift. It's almost unbelievable how many services are out there and it can be quite overwhelming. And I think that could be one of the reasons why people may not present to the GP. They might think, oh, my problem isn't medically related strictly and they won't be able to help me but you could point them in the direction of the right service for example if it's an older person who feels quite isolated you can point them to groups or you could point them to social services that could also help them out yeah and I still think there is a bit of a misnomer about you know when people should access our service and the idea that we just do medical things is you know I I would suggest actually 
most of what I do is kind of there's always an element of mind and body and the bigger picture of what's going on for for the patient, their home, their children, their finances, all of that comes into play. So I think, you know, we are there for absolutely everything and but equally it's like you say it's just sort of making sure that we're also signposting our patients to the right resources because actually I'm not always the right person to know exactly what's out there and I think the pandemic has sort of exacerbated that and so that people are still have the idea that our doors are closed that we're not open we've been open the whole time and our doors and our waiting room are physically open and patients can come in and see us and obviously we are taking precautions to safeguard our staff and other patients we've been open the whole way throughout the pandemic and I think we're not always seeing the right people at the moment there are that are sitting at home and sitting on things for longer than they should yeah I remember that strange phase at the start of the pandemic where people were panicking and sort of spreading fake news that GPs were closed and they're not able to access healthcare, which I think just goes to show as much as people like to complain about GPs and also the NHS, we very much rely on them. This brings me on to my next question of do you think the pandemic has made people more likely or less likely to go to their GP? The first scenario being that people are spending more time at home and therefore more time with themselves. So they're aware of their bodies and they're probably likely to pick up things that they wouldn't have before, not forgetting the fact that there's a pandemic going on which has drawn attention to people's health and then the latter situation where people don't want to burden the already struggling NHS so they're less likely to go to the GP. Yeah so I think right at the beginning of the pandemic we had a quiet phase like I've never seen in all my time in general practice and we're over that period and we were over that period quite some time ago. I think we spent a long time sort of dealing with lots of COVID related issues and just emergencies only or what patients perceived to be emergencies because they were staying away and didn't want to uh, overburden the system. I think people were trying to be really responsible and actually looking after themselves where they could. But I think it has meant that people weren't coming in to get help. We weren't doing as many two-week wait cancer referrals, for example. I feel like we're now at a better position where we are busier than ever and we are catching up and we are doing lots of our routine long-term condition reviews again smears and childhood vaccinations all the kind of really essential stuff and extras I feel like we are doing all of that safely so we are busier than ever but we are we've still got a sense that there are there are a group of people who you know are still not speaking to us and whether that's a misperception that they don't want to bother us sometimes it's people who find it difficult to access us whether that's because of not understanding the system or English not being their first language I'm finding I'm doing a lot more calls with interpreters at the moment and I remember saying in a practice meeting recently oh I spent half an hour with that person and I just you know maybe said to them or maybe I I should call them back and actually one of my colleagues said do you know what Rini I'm not doing that at the moment if people need time and they've called us I just say fine what else and you know we obviously can't do that for everyone and not everybody needs that but I think people are when they do call us are often hung on to things so they've got three or four things all my consultations are taking much longer I I think gone is the day that you know we used to do 10 minute consultations that's just everything is taking longer and our demand has gone up currently compared to this time last year so I think we are playing catch up but there are still inequalities in our system that mean that you know those that are better have better 
access to IT and can use our systems, have text messaging and can do video consults. They have so many more options than some of our other patients who just want to come in and see us. Apart from those reasons that you've given as to why people may not present to the GP, that focuses more on the older population and people who English isn't their first language. What do you think are the other barriers that stop people going to the GP? So I think people put things off. They wait until something is a real problem. I think sometimes focusing on kind of preventative health doesn't seem like a priority for people who are busy and often people will kind of only come to us at a crisis point rather than thinking actually maybe if I deal with this sort of ahead of time maybe I won't get to a crisis point maybe actually I can reverse my trajectory to becoming sort of diabetic if I am able to to get in there early and I think for some people there is a degree of kind of mistrust sometimes in the system for for various reasons and they choose to seek help in other ways if you know you have been judged or people haven't got an open mind about the different options people often ask me about homeopathic treatments or or other mechanisms and i i think you know whilst that may not necessarily always be something I can prescribe on the NHS I think there are lots of kind of paths to wellness and I think as GPs we are generally quite good at sort of saying do you know what here's what I can offer you if you're using something else that actually is really helpful and you found your own way then that's absolutely fine too. I think that's the best approach medicine is personal to each individual And I think this will be quite interesting to see in future studies, but do you think the pandemic has affected the way you practice in a more positive or more negative way? I think there have actually been lots of positives to come out of our consulting during this, and you'll hear mixed opinions from GPs. Our practice did telephone triage before the pandemic, so everyone who wanted an appointment or most people, unless it was a routine appointment with our nurse or with our pharmacist at the practice, most of our patients had got used to the fact that they would have a quick telephone call with a GP to triage and signpost them and to to see whether they needed to be brought in. So even pre-pandemic, we were realising maybe we only needed to see a third of the patients who called up for an appointment that day. I think the kind of benefit with the pandemic have been that actually we have suddenly overnight started every GP now text patients. And I'm not sure I was really using the text facility as much before I can text links, I can text letters to patients, you know, I can text appointments, you know, it just, it. I can have a conversation, patients can send me images of, you know, a lump or a bump or a, or a mole, you know, and for some people that's actually far more convenient, you know, because actually they're at work still and they don't want to come in or they've got other duties. We are able to do video consultations and that has been new for for many of us in general practice. So I think there is lots of positive stuff that we can actually keep and that I hope we will keep as we are going forward. I think we may have opportunities that actually work really well for, for some patients. And we've just got to remember the patients it doesn't work that well for who maybe still want to see uh, a doctor face-to-face who maybe don't speak English and it's easier, although I use a translator on the phone the whole time. But there are, you know, groups of people, especially I brought in someone the other day because there was mention of domestic violence 
in the notes and I just wasn't sure who was in the background so I said why don't you come in to see me and actually when the person saw me they had been describing tension headaches and been quite worried about it but I was really able to unpick and explore what was going on at home and actually what had been going on for them for the past year because they were really tearful and sometimes you get that on the phone they think you know it's easier to just kind of let go and release all of that face to face sometimes so I actually don't think there's any way for us to go back I'm not sure I would want to either I think the other thing I really don't want to go back to and I would be surprised if any practice does is that idea that we can do all the complex stuff that we do in a 10 minute appointment. I mean, whoever made up the rule that you should have 10 minute consultations clearly haven't been to the GP before because that's just unrealistic. Yeah. I mean, you know, if someone's got one single problem and it's really well defined and they're up to date with all their smears and they're not at an age where they might need a bit of a Uh, overall health check and they've got you know a wart that needs removing or something like that there are the rare but often that stuff is you know siphoned off to other practitioners and I think you know what we are left with is actually seeing and holding a lot of the kind of patients that have multiple comorbidities and just a huge degree of complexity and that cannot routinely be done in in 10 minutes Although I think it's helpful when you have continuity and there are some of our patients who have such complexity and to help contain them within the system, we will maybe ring on a regular basis, you know, weekly or every two weekly, just so that they've got the, the one person who really knows them to hold that. And that, yes, you, you know, it, it's really tricky to do that in, in a 10 minute appointment. You are their primary health provider, so it's essential for you to cover all aspects of their care. And I think patients would agree with that. And they'd much rather that you cover all different areas of their health. And not only that, but if they are referred to a specialist, they'll go and see them. But then ultimately, they're discharged back to you and you have to manage their care. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've had patients who have been palliative care teams have been involved for a little bit um, or the mental health team have been involved in a in a crisis. But the rest of the time when there isn't a crisis, actually, it's, you know, patients, their relatives, their their own support mechanisms and us in general practice that manage it and so you know so that hopefully it doesn't spill over into using A&E when they don't need to or using other services you know just making sure that patients have access to the right sort of support at the right time. And how has your experience been communicating with secondary care doctors because I know there can sometimes be friction between the two. Yeah so I think communication is better because we have kind of these integrated teams and meetings. And so I think we get to know our our secondary care colleagues a bit better and you get to know the names, especially when you've worked in an area for long enough. I think it's really helpful. I sign off every letter with my email address, my telephone number, the days I work at the practice. So, you know, I'm really easily accessible. And I think it's just really helpful when I can speak to a colleague in the same way and just, you know, email them and say, I'm really sorry. I know you've got this patient that we're we're sort of managing jointly. And I, I think it would be really helpful if I could have a conversation with you about that. I think it's more difficult when you don't have those relationships. And so it can be a real mixed bag. So yeah, we're on the same page that we 
want to avoid admissions if possible and get a patient in and out but they have facilities that I don't and can get results more urgently or uh, imaging more urgently and I think our frustration is at the other end you know we sometimes get a discharge summary and I've recently had a patient discharged back home after a very long stay in a rehab ward with none of her blister pack medications she has dementia she's got you know lots of comorbidities she's care like well what do we do it's a Saturday and I you know I just think well how did that happen that you could discharge someone in that way you could have picked up the phone and spoken to us during the week equally I, I think thinking about our hospital colleagues they will often say actually it's not that easy to get through to you so I think there do need to be better dedicated kind of systems and phone numbers and ways we can kind of easily communicate with each other so and I think the other thing that is a bit of a bugbear and you'll see a lot on social media is that GPs don't kind of appreciate being asked to arrange lots of additional tests or referrals that could have been arranged in secondary care it, you know and I appreciate sometimes the systems don't exist internally but it's it's a bit frustrating when I think but you know sometimes you can refer to another secondary care colleague as a as a secondary care consultant and other times I'm told I have to do it as a GP even though you've assessed this patient and I think it's yeah it's partly because we are generalists and we we do everything you know specialists will sometimes say that's not something I can do but it's really variable and some some consultants will will absolutely not dump that stuff uh, you know on GP's doorsteps and will pick up the phone or say you know should we have a chat I just I do find if we can have those conversations especially if we most of us will have other roles and work kind of part-time in general practice and so you know I'm very happy to have conversations with people on my days that are not my clinical days because I think it's important if we are sort of doing our best to kind of improve the patient experience and their journey and trying to coordinate that with with patients. I love a good flowchart and it sounds like there could be a more standardized way of what goes in the GP pile and what goes in the specialist pile so a flowchart saying this is how you do referrals or this is the test that GPs should do etc. And of course, the IT systems, the fact that GPs and hospitals use different IT systems and there's not one universal one. Yeah, exactly. And I have now recently managed to sort out my my login details so I can log into the local hospital portal and access their system. So I've got it one way. I can see what investigations show, what the MRI scan that someone else ordered shows. But yeah, equally, that doesn't happen the other way. Although I'm not entirely sure, you know, everything that is documented in general practice, I I don't think that needs to be shared with everyone else. I think, you know, our records are confidential and people tell us some really sort of personal private things. But I, I, I agree. I think it would be better if we could have one kind of IT system across the NHS, but I'm I'm not sure that's going to be happening anytime soon. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it is a fine line, isn't there? But I'm sure there's some coding that they can do to separate confidential files. I mean, if people can create Alexa, I'm sure anything's possible. What about waiting times? How has the pandemic affected that? I mean, it hugely is is the honest answer. I mean, I think what the NHS excels at and has always done really well is, you know, if something is a 
is urgent, if it's a cancer referral, those are all still happening. Those have never stopped during the pandemic. So, you know, something urgent or important that we want to exclude, those are still happening in a timely manner. But not all patients like the fact that they're having a telephone consultation with a specialist. Not all specialists at hospitals have you know, the opportunity to do video consultations. Teams that like, you know, physiotherapists, for example, lots of patients say, don't just want to be shown some exercises to do online. I want someone to actually feel my shoulder and show me what to do. And for some things, there have absolutely been delays. And also there is a sort of additional complexity that many GPs will have to go through referral management processes so that what is going through to secondary care is is the correct stuff. And I think, you know, on some levels, I think that's actually really good to standardise what's getting through. It's also really a bit frustrating when you're an experienced GP and, and you think, and absolutely, you know, this person needs to be seen by secondary care, but I have to first organise absolutely all the blood tests, the scan results, and I need to upload them onto the system. System and then have it approved by someone in a referral management centre before secondary care will accept the referral. So yeah, I, I have to, you may have noticed it slightly sort of, yeah, fills me with dread sometimes that whole process. It, I can understand some of the rationale between wanting to standardise things and, and it's really helpful for our secondary care colleagues if everything that we can do in general practice has been done before they get there but there are sometimes practically reasons that they're quite tricky. Just hearing about that referral process has made my head hurt so I applaud you for doing it thank you and I wanted to end on some advice from you Rini what would you like to tell everyone out there about general practice? We are here and we have been the whole way through the pandemic there is nothing kind of too small so if you are worried then contact us if we are not the right people to speak to we can absolutely signpost you to the the right services so you can drop us an email if you've got a query there are e-consultations there are so many different ways get used to the fact that you know there is a chance that you will have to tell our receptionist a bit of a kind of one line about what the issue is so they can help prioritize you know how quickly and urgently you need to get a call back and that you know there are a variety of different people you might see in our in our team it might be our healthcare assistant it might be our uh, physician's associate it might be our pharmacist it might be our social prescriber but we are there and we do want people to come and um, see us and if they're unsure whether they need to then our receptionists are amazing as well at signposting and telling you where to go as well so general practice has been open the whole way throughout the pandemic and we will continue to be so that's what we do we sort of serve the needs of our community and our population so we want people to come and see us I think that's it and I just think thinking about the other group of people that maybe listen to your podcast and you know as students if you're considering a practice in a career in general practice it's never going to be boring it can be whatever you want it to be it can fit around children it can fit around what really drives you what you're really passionate about you can do urgent care so you can do more acute stuff you can do minor surgery you know you can you can do education you can really make 
general practice the most interesting portfolio career. It gives you lots of options. So if you ever want to chat to GPs about, you know, what it's like, then we're all at King's. Any of any of the team would be happy to talk to you about it. I'm sure a lot of students will take you up on that offer because I know quite a few of us, as we're going through the different rotations in medical school, there's always at the back of our head, wow, if I was a GP, I would have to know a little bit about everything and that's quite overwhelming. Yeah, but you're not doing it on your own. I mean, it does, sometimes it can feel like you're sat on your own in your own space for quite long periods of time. But actually, the other benefit to the pandemic has been we have kind of more regular huddles, we have coffee mornings where we didn't used to just just for 10-15 minutes to catch up on things that are a bit more complex that would benefit from talking about things as a team so actually yeah I, I I think general practice has been sort of transformed in many kind of positive ways by the pandemic and you know it, it, it'll be interesting to see what, what the future holds. But I, I think we've got to hold on to some of those positive changes. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Rini. No problem at all. I have to say, I did wonder whether, because I've been listening to all your podcasts and I know that one of your first guests you called Auntie. So I was thinking the whole way through, am I going to get to, uh, to be called Auntie <laughs> during this podcast? <laughs> so I'm quite I'm secretly quite pleased that I didn't end up getting, getting Auntie's status. <laughs> Dr. Latif is a family friend, that's why. I don't think I could call one of my lecturers auntie. <laughs> I am an auntie to lo- lots of my nieces, but yeah, no, maybe, maybe not quite yet for my, my students. Imagine, starts a podcast and thinks she can call all of her guests auntie and uncle. Well, that's a wrap. Not sure if I'm entitled to say that, but this is the end of season one of Mind on the Matter and see you in July for season two. 